In Matthew 24, verses 36 through 51, the Lord Jesus is teaching on the last days of the Great Tribulation. We're being introduced to a world wearied by successive cataclysms of judgment. And do you want to get a grip on what the mindset of the people will be at that awful time period? Well, the Lord Jesus tells us, so listen in. Folks, I'm Joe Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our work internationally to raise up disciples or our missions fellowship in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. In our lesson in our last broadcast, we emphasized that at the end of the Great Tribulation, there would be more than enough evidence of the mounting judgment of God upon the nations, and that this judgment was not relenting. But as we learn today, never underestimate the capacity of people to suppress any news that impedes their pursuit of independence from God. The evidence was there that God was bringing judgment. It was mounting up for them. They could see it coming on the way towards them. Here's the second thing we want to, observation we want to make about this. We should never underestimate the capacity of sinful people to suppress the truth that God is revealing. We should never underestimate the capacity of us or human beings in their sins to suppress the truth that God is revealing. That's what Romans 1.18 says. It says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, even right now, even in the present hour, God is making known in different ways that he is unhappy with the choices people make to pursue their own unrighteousness and their own wickedness, and he's revealing that wrath from age to age. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Maybe you've heard something like this before. You know, if God was really real, why doesn't he prove himself to me? I would believe in him if he would just give me the evidence. If I were alive during the time in which Christ walked upon the earth and I had seen what the other people seen and I could see it happening myself, well, then maybe then I would believe and I would receive and I would follow him, but I haven't seen anything like that. Heard statements like that or people intimate things like that before? The Gospels record the many astounding public miracles of the Lord Jesus. He openly is healing the sick, everyone who comes to him, He openly is casting out demons. He's openly giving sight to the blind and he's causing the lame to walk and he's restoring maimed hands and bodies and limbs. He's he's openly raising the dead. He's multiplying food for multitudes to feed them as they gather around to hear him teach. He's commanding the wind and the waves and all that are on the sea with him hear it and see it and recognize this great miracle. He's filling empty nets full of fish and On and on and on, you see these public expressions of the miraculous work of the Lord Jesus during his ministry. The Apostle John comes to the end of the life of the Lord Jesus, and the very last verse in his gospel, he tells us that all of the things that Christ had done up to that point in time, and everything that's listed, and everything that he's told us is just a small portion of all that he did, of all the miraculous things he did. Here's what it says in verse 25 of John 21. John writes this. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus had a very public ministry at his first coming. And yet in the time of this miraculous ministry and all that he was doing, 
the great majority of people refused to believe in him. They wouldn't give God glory for the miracles he performed. In fact, their leaders said that he was doing it by the power of Satan. And the people kept coming to him and asking him to do more and more. Give us another sign. Give us another sign. And they weren't asking for the sign in order that, that they might believe. They were asking for another sign in order that they might postpone belief. They didn't want to believe. They wanted to stave it off. Show us something else. Show us something more. His miracles didn't convince them or change them. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, we're told that after he did that, that the leaders began to plot how they could kill Jesus. After he raised Lazarus from the dead, and how they could kill Lazarus. It didn't convince them. Don't underestimate a person's ability in unbelief and unrighteousness to suppress the truth that comes before them. And, and this suppression may not even be a denial of what they're seeing and what it means. It could just be an expression of delay on their part from surrendering up to that truth of what they're seeing and what it means. They put off the required surrender of their lives to this one and what his life means and demands of them, putting it off for further consideration as they hold on to the life that they want to leave and the control that they want to maintain over their lives. So Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1 to tell us the reason for this suppression of truth or for this lack from this and it's not, he says, from a lack of evidence. It's clearly plain. It's plain. They can see it for themselves in all of God's creation that God is there and that God exists. It's because they don't wish to glorify God. It's because they're not thankful and they don't want to yield to Him and worship Him as the source of being and life. And it's their resistance to put God at the center of their life, which is what we do when we worship. That's why they suppress it. Here's a third thing that you want to, we want to see here and observe. First thing is, there's going to be plenty of evidence that the judgment is coming. The second thing, they're going to suppress that evidence because man has a tremendous capacity of suppressing what they don't want to have impeding upon them in their own choices, in their own decisions, in their own self-willed ways. The third thing is that while suppressing this mounting evidence and delaying their surrender to the truth that's being unfolded before them, while this is all happening at the end of the age, there will be a worldwide pursuit for normality. And with it, a pressing into all the regular conventions of social life. It's kind of amazing that at the end of the incredible hardships of the tribulation, to think that human beings will still be striving after normalcy and striving to prove themselves capable of maintaining the ongoing customs of life, just getting back onto the script, back onto the page. They did the same thing in Noah's day. In the face of Noah's preaching, in the face of his ongoing calls for the people to repent, as the ark is taking shape before them, as the animals are gathering around the ark, the people in the middle of all the wickedness that is mounting up around them, the people are ignoring all these things. They're ignoring the havoc that's all around them and they're determined instead with peptic optimism that everything's gonna work out. They're still giving and taking in marriage. They're still carrying on the customs of life, just trying to keep on. If everything is normal, Maybe I could venture here into a little psychology. This will not be entirely accurate, I'm sure. We have a notion that's called codependency. It was developed in the 1950s. It was kind of an explanation of why it was that families got in cycles of addiction and they just went from one generation to the next generation. But in essence, the idea was that there were these complementing dysfunctions that different individuals had. They had needs in their life that they wanted to have service from the other individual, and the payoff was if, if I'll meet your needs, you meet my needs. 
and in this reciprocal relationship of dysfunction, they would feed one another's broken lives and their broken needs, and in the result, their lives would just descend down into further and dwindle down into further and further patterns of dysfunction, and they would blithely descend in this agreement they made with one another into a kind of oblivion in their lives. Instead of saying things like, you know, our, our home is a mess and we need intervention, and we need change. As long as I make you feel needed, and as long as you feed my addiction, let's hang together, let's be together. And there is, in a sense, a picture here of this kind of fallen relationship where instead of feeding one another and benefiting one another and raising one another up, you find individuals who meet you in your lowest point and your most failed places in your life, and they help you sustain those things, as long as you help them sustain the same things in their life by feeding the sense of need that they have in their life. It's, I'll be your Bonnie, you be my Clyde, and we'll just kind of work together at robbing one another of a future and a blessing. And in the days of Noah, let's call this codependency, I'm getting a broadening it out from the idea, the psychological idea, but in the days of Noah, this was an epidemic problem. People were simply servicing their flaws and their errors and their sin and helping each other go along, painting the world for one another. If everything is okay, well, nothing was okay. And it's something that goes on as a pattern in people's lives from day to day in the world in which we live in. It will be epidemic again in the last days. It will be epidemic again in the last days. People believing or telling one another's lies to one another and pretending to believe the other person's lies just as long as they pretend to believe your lies. The state of dysfunction that will take place in that hour. Revelation 18 records the collapse of the economic structure that holds up the nations during the tribulation period. I want to read you an extensive part of that, so take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 18. At the end of the tribulation, just as everything is tipping into this final judgment, we're told that the economic structure that holds the world together all through this period and unites it all together will finally come and suddenly come to a great collapse in one hour, it says over and over again. Revelation 18, 9 through 19, I want to read it to you. But I want you to see as we're reading this is that the course of the economy has still been feeding people just ordering and buying and purchasing and trying to live as though everything's normal in the middle of the tribulation this is going on because now we're coming to the end verse 9 the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning her is a picture of this economic center of life which is called babylon standing at a distance for fear of her torment saying Alas, alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, so precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, and every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, and cattle and sheep and horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you'll find them no more at all. 
The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster who traveled by the ship and sailors and many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. So you have this, what we call this contributing dysfunction. You have individuals who are just happy to buy the wealth that these men are bringing to them, and they're gaining wealth of it, and as long as everybody is getting their satisfaction and getting things to adorn their lives with, in the middle of all of the darkness of the tribulation, in the middle of the torment and the, and the wretchedness that we read about in Revelation 8 and 9, all of it's covered over by this ongoing produce that's being delivered and this consumption of these things. And if we could just keep consuming these things, we'll be satisfied and all will be well. And such is going on in this period of great denial of the realities around them. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 commands that the Christian test themselves to see if they're in the faith. In answer to this command and with the desire to bring Christians into a sound and true assurance of saving faith, we've developed a website and a book for this purpose. Go to savingevangelicals.com and take the test and order the book by the same name, Saving Evangelicals. I can't think of a more important book for our day. Again, thanks for listening to The Bread of Life. Until the next time, may God bless you.